Meditation. 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 Depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, I feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice... Can't think of anything. This is Meditation in the City. The Shambhala New York Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Meditation in the City podcast, a podcast where we explore topics on Buddhist meditation and maintaining a meditation practice amidst living in a busy world. My name is Francesca, and I'm your host. The title of this episode is How Can We Invite Contentment into Our Lives? Given the reality of suffering in our current world, there is a great need to cultivate a sense of contentment. In this episode, we will explore meditation-based practices to begin to invite more appreciation and gratitude into our daily lives. Today we are joined by David Greenan. David is a psychologist and professor of psychology, teaching family therapy at Teachers College, Columbia University. He has a particular interest in the intersection of mindfulness practice, the practice of psychotherapy, and how we activate resiliency and basic goodness in systems. He has studied Shambhala Buddhism for the past 20 years and has been a student of Sakyong Mipham Rinpoche since 2010. He teaches regularly for Queer Dharma and in the Way of Shambhala curriculum at the Shambhala Meditation Center of New York. The Meditation in the City podcast is hosted by the Shambhala Meditation Center of New York. Here's David to take away the discussion. So welcome everybody. It's good to see um, you all come out on a, at least here in New York, a very hot, steamy summer night. As I was preparing some thoughts that we can share and sort of play with tonight, um, I thought what a perfect antidote for the time that we're living in to be talking about how do we and I would like to use the terminology of uncover, or maybe even rediscover contentment. Because in Shambhala Buddhism, we, the belief is, is that we already have all of these qualities and that we simply need to have the appropriate conditions for them to become accessible to us. And so that's what tonight is going to be about. How do we create both through skillful means to uncover to rediscover our essential contentment, or sometimes you will see it referred to as basic goodness. When you stop and think about what's going on in the world today, whether it be within the microcosm of uh, the city here, the uh, incredible uh, turmoil in New York City we've been through with the pandemic, with the struggles for social justice, women's rights, gay rights, gender equality. And of course, that's not just isolated to New York City, but uh, something we're struggling all over the world uh, for. Um, and it seems like introducing these skillful means at this period of time really um, feel right on the dot. So, I encourage all of us to find our voices for this class. 
the, my philosophy and the philosophy of Shambhala Buddhism is that the collective wisdom is greater than any one individual. So that together we'll be able to find some of the answers to the questions we have. And that this collective wisdom is something that we want to encourage. So one of the things about what we're going to be focusing on tonight is basically comes under mind training, how to and certainly initially in the practice of shamatha, meditation, mindfulness meditation, it can enhance if you have a spiritual practice, which some of you have already mentioned you do, it can enhance, it can be a spiritual practice in and of itself, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. You can simply use it as a way of calming your central nervous system, of arriving in the here and now, and learning to be gentle with yourself and curious, and to be able to, much as a good caretaker does with a child who's upset, to be able to hold those parts of you that are hurting in loving kindness without judging them, so that we have this phrase called the cradle of loving kindness. And it's the bedrock of Buddhism. It's initially taught 2,500 years ago by the Shakyamuni uh, Buddha um, and been passed down through oral tradition um, in the particular lineage that we're studying tonight, Shambhala Buddhism was brought to North America in the 1970s by Shogun Trungpa Rinpoche. We always start with shamatha, which is in Sanskrit, but translated into English would literally would mean peaceful abiding. And that's what we're inviting in is for us to return to or rediscover a state calmness, of gentleness, of love towards ourselves in this practice, this Hinayana practice. Um, I actually would like to just sort of guide us through the protocols for basic Shambhala, Shamatha meditation. What Shamatha is like is uh, taught in Shambhala Buddhism. So the first thing we do um, find where we're going to sit. <laughs> and some of you may be on cushions, and some of you are on chairs, and either is permissible. You don't get gold stars for being on the ground or sitting on a chair. Basically, this is not to increase suffering for you. It's to make you comfortable but alert. And that's what the body posture is about, is creating comfort in your body and encouraging an alertness of the mind. So the first thing is to find where, however you're seated, your sits bones, the bones in the butt, which I do by rocking back and forth. And that kind of grounds me, gives me a center of gravity. And then I kind of just am aware of my lightness of being from the waist up, sort of a lifting up of my body towards the heavens. A slight tuck of the chin is good as it releases all of that tension that many of us have working on Zoom that occurs um, in our shoulders and our neck. Then your hands, just drop them by your side if you want and just gently bring them up 
and let them rest either on your thighs or your knees. You're seated on a cushion, your legs are crossed at the ankles. Knees do not have to be on the ground. Some people do like that, and that's their particular way of doing it. But you can just cross at the ankles and let your knees fall comfortably where they may. And then in Shambhala Buddhism, and I'd like you to play with this a little bit, we actually encourage you <clears throat> to have a soft gaze. What do I mean by a soft gaze? That our eyes are open, eyelids kind of at half masks, soft focus, and the focus is three to five feet in front of us, down towards the ground or the floor. And there's a reason for this, and that's in Shambhala Buddhism, it's not only about finding peace, contentment, love for ourselves, but we also take this out into the world. So there's a big tradition of social activism, social activism in Shambhala Buddhism. And so keeping our eyes open to the world is one way of not closing ourselves out to the world, but rather opening ourselves to the world. And try with it. You know, it's fine if you want to close your eyes, but I encourage you to open them at times and see what the difference is, how having a soft gaze may activate your senses of taste and touch, sight and sound. And then I often set an aspiration, as I asked you to do tonight when you checked in. So what would you like to invite in today? meditation. Don't make it complicated, but just silently set an aspiration for your seeing. And in this particular form of practice, the object of meditation is the breath. So in some traditions, there are sounds, there are mantras, there might be bells, but we um, use the breath literally follow the breath if you're able to do it with allergies and stuff follow the breath as it comes in through your nostrils goes out through your nasal passages through the chest and feel it go all the way down into your tummy and you'll know that you're doing three-part breathing if you feel your tummy maybe even your lower back slightly expand as you breathe in and then there's a natural contraction as you exhale, all through, so if you're able to do it through your nostrils. Shamatha. Learning to be gentle and kind with yourselves. Whenever you find your mind wandering, which it will, for most of us, just label it thinking and come back breath, gently directed, redirect the mind back to rest on the breath, following the breath as it comes in and out of your body. So that was a shamatha, peaceful abiding. considered a skillful means. A lot of what's going on today is reducing to 
incredible amount of anxiety amongst people, fearfulness, anger, sadness, and this is a skillful means as a way of beginning to quiet the chatter that goes on in response to what's going on around us all the time. The analogy is often used in um, Shambhala Buddhism that the mind is like a wild horse. And that wild horse will take off in any direction it wants to take off. When it gets spooked, it just take, it bolts. And in this analogy, the horse is the mind and the rider is the meditator. And the task and purpose, skillfulness of mindfulness practice is that we learn how to ride this wild horse. We and the horse become one. We have this sense of um, synchronicity, of trust. The horse begins to see that we are looking out for it, that we're not going to abuse it. And we learn to ride and stay on the path. Well, that's part of what we're doing when we remind ourselves thinking and then bring our mind back to rest on the breath. So I'm going to repeat myself and um, pedagogical theory. I'm supposed to say things three times or to register in our brain. So this is the third time. The, the, Basic foundation of mindfulness practice is what we just did, shamatha. So if you've got an incredibly busy day and there's nothing else, you've only got 10 minutes, give yourself the gift of shamatha. Um, and practice on a regular basis. It really, uh, you know, I've heard the Sakyong say this will, it's a good practice for a lifetime. We're going to go a little bit further today because we were interested in one of the basic teachings of the way of Shambhala is how do we invite, we create conditions for contentment to be accessible to us in this in difficult period of time that we're living in. Um, and it really, uh, we dip into the sort of the path of the warrior. Um, in, in warrior, that word is used here not to mean somebody who goes out with a sword and mows people down, but rather the contrary. How do we find the courage and bravery to step out of the cocoons that all of us create? It's part of how we survive. Some of us have survived a lot. And we do it by creating this shell around us, which I call a cocoon. And in order to experience a sense of contentment with ourselves and mercy towards other sentient beings, it takes a lot of courage and bravery, right? To step through out of the cocoon and to open ourselves authentically to the world, to open ourselves initially to ourselves loving kindness, and then to extend that out to all sentient beings. And there's a nice little 
contemplative practice that uh, I'm going to lead us through, which really uh, I think you'll find very helpful. Perhaps the best way, I always, for myself, I feel like the best learning is done through experiential work. So I think I'm going to lead us right into the practice and then we'll do, we'll go up into our heads after that and we can talk about it. Um, so once again, you won't be surprised to hear, we're going to just sit in shamatha and then I'll verbally lead you through this uh, invitation to rediscover and explore what contentment feels like for you. And I'm hoping we'll have a nice discussion about that. So, um, now I'm going to guide you through contemplative practice for inviting, rediscovering contentment, uncovering contentment, which you inherently have. We do this in the same position that we've been using for our shamatha. And then I would like you to just come back to your breath. And just contemplate the word contentment. You might even see what it means for you. Just allow yourself to kind of mull on that word and see what it feels like. Contentment. Then I invite you to bring some part of yourself to mind, which you totally appreciate, that you don't need to fix. So it could be something as simple as appreciating your hair or your, the fact that you can see or speak, or it could be some personal personality feature that you have, that you just totally appreciate about yourself and you have no need to fix it. Just play with that for a few minutes until you find something that you really appreciate and value about yourself, some part of yourself. And be creative, sort of picture yourself, where are you? You have this appreciation, you might even see what you look like. See what feelings this part of you creates in your body. Explore the feelings that this part of you evokes in your body.
See if you can identify the feelings that you're having. It might be your body might feel warm or there may be a sense of coziness or comfort. Allow whatever feelings you're having in your body to be identified that this part of you evokes. And then see if you can drop the narrative around this part of you, the story around this part of you, and just rest in the feelings of appreciation or warmth or contentment. Whatever your body has experienced, just see if you can rest in that state of being. If you find your mind wandering, just as you did in Shamatha when you came back to the breath, direct your mind to rest on wherever in your body you were having the feelings of either appreciation or thankfulness or warmth, or gratitude. Just rest in that state. Now I invite you to bring to mind either someone you love or a friend, could be even an acquaintance, someone who's living or maybe someone who is no longer physically with you. But think of some quality that they have that you have no need to change or to fix, something that they exhibit that they express that you have total acceptance and gratitude for. It could be something about them physically or something about them emotionally or something that they, they do for you. Bring that image your heart. If you're having any difficulty with this, it's okay to use a pet, some quality of a pet. Something that brings you a sense of appreciation and gratitude. Some other sentient being has that quality. And allow yourself to experience it. No need to change, no need to fix it. You begin to become aware of whatever feelings are being evoked by this quality. And it could be warmth, it could be appreciation, gratitude. 
needs of safety, of security, be loved. Just allow yourself to, for those feelings to wash through your body. See what type of energy you associate with them. And once again, see if you can drop the storyline around that and just rest in the feelings of that particular part of um, your friend or acquaintance, loved one that you've identified. Just stay with the feelings and drop the storyline. And see how the feelings you experience them in your body. Now I invite you to take in something in your environment. Could be something right in front of you. I mean, many of you are in beautiful settings. Could be the way light shines through your window, or it could be a plant that you see, or it could be an art object, or something that gives you a sense of appreciation and gratitude. And just see whatever feelings are evoked. Whether it be something from nature, whether it be something that's man-made. Once again, drop the storyline and just rest with the feelings. And then once again, bring to mind the word contentment and see how that you experience that energy in your body. Just allowing that word to permeate your being, contentment. So I'd, I'd love to hear any responses to what that was like for any of you or any questions. What is the, your experience of contentment around the exercise of kindness and friendliness towards yourself? How did that influence the practice?
you know, for me, I often get a sense of that my heart cracks open. I, I guess it's almost a sense of walking out of the cocoon in a sense of feeling no longer frightened, but feeling like I'm one with the world. Mm -hmm. I was teaching some students recently and I had to go from the observation room into the room with the clients that were being seen by a, uh, a trainee uh, family therapist. And they were just ripping him one side up and one side down, telling him what a, how terrible the treatment was. And I went in and I just was so tense and I was feeling so braced for fight flight. You know, wanting to my students to think of me as being a good teacher, a good therapist. And it was just my head was all in the wrong place. And somewhere between the observation room and the treatment room, I had this opening and the person who was doing a lot of talking in the family that we were seeing was the mother. And I thought she's expressing her fear and her sadness in the only way she knows how to do it. And that's by fighting and by putting people down and by, you know. And so I went in with that different frame of sort of opening my heart to her pain. And sure enough, she told me what a lousy job I was doing. And I just sat there and listened without feeling like I needed to protect myself or defend myself. Mm -hmm. And when she eventually wore down and stopped, you know, for a moment, I said, I am so sorry that you are hurting so much. And I understand, you know, that we have failed you, that you don't feel taken care of here. And I really hope that we can find a way where we're able to help you and your children. And with that, she broke down and started crying. And the whole, nothing had changed other than the, the connection between the two of us changed. And from there, there was a potential for a lot of movement. And indeed, well, there was a lot of movement in the therapy, but it was just a slight shift sort of finding um, an open heart, mm -hmm. my open heart to her pain. And that's in a very paradoxical way is contentment that we don't feel like we're alone in the world, that somebody hears us. You know? So that's the cause of so much pain in the world is that sense of unbearable aloneness, right? that we feel like we have no one to share with. Whenever I hear the word contentment, I think of my father who, um, who I never quite understood as a, as a young person and a child because he was always so content. And I, even as a teenager, I would say, dad, how could you be like, you know, it's like, isn't life more complicated than this? And he was just, you know, he was just a regular Joe. He was a factory worker. Um, and and then I, I, I ended up caregiving for my mom, my dad, and a really beloved aunt. And they all had dementia. And it went on for like 13 years. So, um when my, when my mom died, uh, it wasn't planned, but my dad in, ended up coming into my house and 
um, I, I took him to my house and he lived eight more years. And even though he had no short-term memory, um, he, he, he was the kindest soul. <laughs> and that was always, I, I, I don't know how to, I don't know how to cut it all short, but it, it, it went round and round in, in, um, during this practice of, I always think of my dad as content. And what I didn't understand when I was younger is that his priorities were my mom, who he adored. He had his, his, his wife and his children. And he loved his work. And his, the workers loved him. <laughs> and um, it, for example, I, I had an uncle who um, asked, my dad to go into business with him and my and my dad said no and my uncle came to me one day and he said oh you know I and, and my uncle did very well and he said you know I asked your father but he didn't want to and it made it made me feel like my dad was a failure but you know having a person so close to you with dementia you you know you kind of have to be in their head it becomes a very very intimate um relationship and I I I really came to understand um, that his his contentment it was had his priorities right. He wasn't driven by money or greed or competition, and um, and in his in his obituary, I wrote his legacy was kindness because he was just so kind even through the dementia. He always made you feel good. If he didn't know you, he didn't know if he knew you, it didn't matter. You know, it's like he was just always kind. And and I and I realized how undervalued that is that we, we don't have a measuring stick really for kindness and um how how we undervalue that. But it was it's, it was it was a life lesson for me forever. Um so it's a very strong um you know session for me and it, you know the very words contentment and kindness um is is super powerful in in, in my life thank you i more so had a question yes please Esteban. um yeah so what I've been doing, I, I practice yoga, uh, vinyasa yoga every day, which is also very focused on the breath. Um, so since I've set up like my daily meditation practice, I'll do, I'll sit for 10 minutes after a vinyasa practice, um, which I find that they complement themselves very well. Um, I usually find time in the morning for that. Um, is there like a set time that is best to meditate or is it really dependent on the meditator? Great question. Um, I'm just going to answer from a personal point of view. I find if I don't meditate in the morning, it's very unlikely to happen. <clears throat> Although I use it a lot um, in my I do a lot of family practice work. Um, I, uh, Deborah, welcome. Um, 
so I, I throughout the day will use it with families and with as well as with individuals. But for my personal time, just to sit and sort of find my own um, grounding, um, I like to do it first thing in the morning. Some people have a really disciplined practice of where they do morning and night at the end of the day. I do sometimes I'm more apt to do it in the middle of the night. I have things I'm worried about. I'll wake up and I will either go to the cushion or sometimes I just lie flat on my bed and meditate um, as a way of literally making friends with whatever is rattling through my head um, to quiet that down and to extend um, this cradle of loving kindness so that we aren't constantly judging. Oh, I'm a bad meditator. Oh, today I was a good meditator. It's all the same. Great. Yeah. And then um, just a follow up, like yes, in please. terms of setting, do you think like a practice should be in, should you try to find the same setting, um, you know, every time you sit pretty much or, cause I, I do like Augustine, I do like to go to uh, Central Park sometimes and sit there, but then sometimes I'm finding myself having to meditate in my apartment. So it gets a little wishy-washy. I think it's nice if we have a little, I mean, many of us live in apartments, but you know, if it's snowing or raining or whatever's going on, it's nice to have a little corner, some place in our apartment could be your bedroom, depending upon how much space you have, where you can kind of have, you know, some pictures that you might be very fond of that have special meaning to you. You might put some flowers or you might put an art object that you particularly love. But the sense of calmness and of, of what we're encouraging in an expression that some of you may know and others it may be a new term, we want to invite in Drala. We want to invite Mother Earth, Mother Nature, all of the qualities that are bountiful, even in New York City. If you take the time and look up, you'll see some pretty amazing skies or cloud patterns or my office looks out onto a, in, uh, the inside garden of a building and the green this time of year is breathtakingly beautiful. Um, you know, I, I have a statue of the Buddha on my desk and that gives me pleasure. Or right now I have a candle burning. Um, so just things that for you open your heart to the bounty of what's around you in a peaceful, gentle way. So having a little space, um, you can call it a shrine if you want, or just a little place where you sit can be very helpful. Alternatively, I find one of the most moving, some of the most moving meditations I've had have been out of doors. You know, there's something about Mother Nature provides us with that doesn't get much better. You know, so it can be very grounding and centering, but not always available. Sure. Thank you, David. Yeah. I have a, an insight that's probably going to lead to a question. So when we got to thinking of somebody in your life that 
there's a, a trait or something that you really admire about them. I thought I brought up my sister and her competitiveness and her tenacity. And when I sat with the feelings, it was really, really, really difficult to sit still, which is something that doesn't usually happen to me in my normal meditation practice. And so I felt like I was trying to fight the urge to move around. How do you let a feeling, an intense feeling wash through you? And do you let it, like, do you sit with it? Do you move with it? How do you, do you try to control it? What's, what's the, what's the process? Um, another great question. The first response that I would do is to try to sit with it, just see what it's like, what it's doing to me, where I'm feeling it in my body. And I might set aside actually five minutes in my practice to allow myself to kind of experience a strong emotion, strong feeling and see if I can bring it back into, you know, my body so that I'm able to sit with it. Um, sometimes it actually makes sense to get up and walk around a little bit, you know, go outside, go for a walk, go get a glass of water, just change your energy level and then come back to the cushion again. Um, but the first response would be to try to sit with it and let it just rest in your body. And it's a strange response, Noah, is see what the feeling, if it could talk, what it wants you to know. So you isolate it where you experience it in your body. You might even ask yourself, how old is the feeling? That kind of energy. And then say, what is it you want me to know? What's the wisdom in this feeling? Thank you. Yeah. I just want to say I'm glad you asked that question, Noah, because that answer, David, about asking the feeling or the sensation what it might want you to know. I, I mean, that's just I've never heard that. It's really. Um, I don't know. It just feels very juicy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think it's one of Deborah. One of the main qualities of, um, I mean, there's so many ways that contemporary cutting edge psychology overlaps with these teachings from 2,500 years ago. It's like almost psychologically, we're beginning to catch up with what the Buddha was teaching 2,500 years ago, and. Um, that's one of them, you know, what is the wisdom? We're so, I'm so prone to want to beat myself up for my mind is wandering or I'm having these feelings which seem bigger than me or whatever it is rather than, oh, wow. You know, let me just spend, make friends with this feeling. See, what the, where the, where's the wisdom in it? You know, we're not crazy. Society tells us we're crazy or somebody tells us, but we develop the cocoon because it's a way we survive in life. So it's actually adaptive, you know, and uh, so don't be so quick to throw it away and see, say, oh, that's, you know, that's a bad thing or a good thing or whatever. 
savor it. Um, I'd be I'd be interested to know just to hear your take on um, the difference between meditation and silent prayer, and maybe part two is um, it's. It changing a, a meditation practice, say from day to day, um, um, is, is say from like, um, you know, the gaze and focusing on breath or counting breaths or using a mantra. How, what does that do if you change it from day to day? Good question. I'm going to start with the second, and then I'm going to go back to the first. Okay. Um, my personal opinion is, and a teacher once told me this, when we're learning um, a technique, to stay with one particular technique until we're really comfortable with it, until it's sort of in our bones, if you will. And then you can try other techniques, but to mix and match, depending on how you're feeling any one day or another, can get very confusing um, and kind of can be a way of... Um, escaping the task, which is to quiet down the mind and to develop uh, loving kindness, gentleness with ourselves and to observe how our mind behaves as a wild horse. Now, another much bigger question is prayer and um, mindfulness. And I've of the mind, and I don't think, I know I'm not unique because Thich Nhat Hanh taught this, I believe also. There's so much overlap, so much overlap in all, many of the world religions and many spiritual practices of, um, in that the skills that we develop in mindfulness practice, we basically in its pure essence, I think spiritual practices are encouraging us to drop into our heart, to get out of our heads, in the in many, many cultures, the, the heart center, right, is the wisdom center. So we want to be in our wisdom center and allow that wisdom that we're born with. So it's not like we have to learn it in order, it's already there when we're born. And to allow that to inspire us to help us see the things that we often beat ourselves up about or the things that we often end up grasping for because they, they think we think it's going to make us happy whether it be you know, that new watch or purse or pair of shoes or lover or um, drug um, you know and we find instead this place of quietness and uh, peacefulness that exists within each of us, no matter where we are. Watching um, the news the other night on PBS, uh, and there was a, some pictures uh, in uh, Ukraine, and a woman was standing, actually doing some work out in front of her yard, and her house was leveled. It existed no more. But she was tending her flower garden. It was tulips, and she, the reporter, you know, I think it was Nick, the, the fellow who's the PBS um, 
foreign correspondent. And he says, how are you doing? How are you handling all of this? And she says, I have these, my beautiful tulips. And they came up this year, she said, despite everything else. I thought it was such a, a deeply felt an example of how in the midst of this horrendous things that these people are going through, not just in the Ukraine, but in many places in the world, how we find basic goodness. And in this case, it was through the, the draw, right, of the tulips. We're going to do an exercise uh, in a few minutes, um, which is another skillful means of how through contemplative practice, we invite contentment into our lives. It's always available to us. We could be on our deathbed and it's available to us. We could be in a war zone and it's available to us. We could be in some pretty horrendous places and we have this energy is there. Did I answer at all your question? Yeah, I, I, yes. I, um, I, the, the thing that really resonates is there's so much overlap and it's interesting to, you know, for people who have been practicing forever to hear their take. I had, um, someone say to me, um, a, a Catholic sister, she said, meditation is always one and prayer is always two. And that was another way to think about it. Oh. And also, the, you know, the language of always trying to explain it. I always feel like here's the road. Here's what I want to say. But like I'm on the shoulder somewhere like you say it one way and it's not it's always something a little different than what you're trying to put in words. So it was it's just really interesting to me to yeah. hear um, from different perspectives. Yeah. But there's overlap. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. One of the things that actually attracted me to uh, Buddhism, and specifically Shambhala Buddhism, was Pema Chodron and her incredible practices on Tonglen, how we not only um, invite loving kindness towards ourselves, regardless of where we're at, but then how do we take that and extend it out into the world? That is often the spiritual practice for many, many traditions. It's not just Buddhism. You know, I mean, my Lord, and the contradictions that go with some religions and yet some extraordinary work that they do in humanitarianism and extending and recognizing our interconnectedness and how do we then take that interconnectedness, interdependency, and develop loving kindness for one another. Because we're, we're more alike than not. Uh, I was just, one of the things, I was not raised at all with a uh, religious practice in my life at all. My mother was an artist and wilderness person, and that was her church. <laughs> and my father was locked out of one once, I think when he was in his twenties and he's, that was it for him, you know, 
my one one of the things that I came to understand when I started working with meditation years ago, and also have read Pema's work, was this. I, I I saw a parallel with prayer in the way that I was looking at meditation through the practice of stopping these uh, constant stories that we construct within our minds. And that's such a human trait, as you said, we are so alike. And that is absolutely what we do It's human beings. And for many different reasons, I could give a lecture about the, the, our uh, evolution from the Neanderthal mind, this, this cognitive dissonance. And it was it's interesting because one day I realized, I said, oh, okay, well, that's essentially what they do in prayer, don't they? They just focus on an, an iconic, an icon, or they have a chance, or they, you know, that community. And that was a, quite a realization for me, that it was, it is about just, and perhaps I'm being very elementary in thinking about it, but that idea of just stopping us from these constructing these horrific stories that we have this propensity to do as human beings, mm -hmm. rabbit holes that we go down on yeah. a regular basis. And so. that we often create these narratives, right? That we riff on and spin out into the universe. And right. this is a, a skillful means um, to how to quiet that down mm. so that we can get centered in our basic goodness in our sense of, um, peace and um, gentleness, yeah. which is our considered to be our innate nature. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, we invite you to leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and share this episode with your friends. Shambhala NYC also offers a variety of meditation courses for meditators of all levels. Check out our upcoming programs at shambhalanyc.org. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.